This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Welcome to another episode of Growing Up Rock's Time Capsule. With me today, we have Joe Beck. Hey, Joe, what's going on, buddy? How you doing, Stephen? This is a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, we're glad to have you. You've got some definite interesting stories. You went out to the website and you just dropped us kind of a, a teaser uh, with uh, a bunch of hints around different stories. So uh, sure. we'll cover a couple of things in this episode and uh, we'll get you back for a couple other time capsules along the way. Uh, tell me, Joe, um, when did you first get into uh, rock and roll? What was kind of your gateway into uh, rock and, and hard rock? All right. So I, I, I always liked the heavier stuff. So, you know, you'd listen to the radio as a kid and my favorite songs would be Bachman Turner Overdrive, The Sweet, School's Out, Alice Cooper, Smoke in the Water. So I always liked that heavier stuff. So when I heard Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss, the live version, with Ace Frehley's guitar solo, I was like, I got to check this out. So at the time, I started working, you know, cutting grass. Um, I think I was in fifth grade and went to the record store and bought Kiss Alive. And when I, as soon as I saw the album, my, my head exploded. It, I, you know, you're seeing that cover with makeup and, and the theatrics, and I brought it, and, and the the gatefold with their notes and the pictures, I was like, I, I, my mind was blown, and I listened, to, I think I listened to Side 1 for like a month before I even got to Side 2, so it's my all-time favorite album, so if there's one gateway album that really, really got me hooked on the hard rock and metal, it was Kiss Alive. You, you and so many other uh, kids uh, your age at that point, for sure. I'm, right. I'm sure. So that's so that's awesome. So that 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 kind of lit the way, uh, and and from there, did it? What did it snowball into? Well, then I got hooked, and then I I was buying like albums a week. I was blowing all my money on albums. You know, Aerosmith rocks was my next album, and those are always my one two greatest albums of all time. I can listen to Rocks anytime. I think it's the perfect album. I get pissed off when Aerosmith doesn't play anything on their set list from it because it's so brilliant. I mean, they should open every show with Back in the Saddle. And I know Aerosmith has that thing where they now, you know, put out crap or have put out crap, but they're great live. Back when they were put out great stuff, they were crappy live. God, believe me, I saw them back then. But they do play old songs they play stuff off their first four albums which are probably the best rock and roll to me uh, you know i know there's the zeppelins and in, in the in the first four van halen's for me it's the first four aerosmith albums but the fact that they don't play anything from rocks just really doesn't sit well with me it really pisses me off and that happens a lot on when they play on tour so that was my next uh, album and then of course you, know, you get in the ted Nugent, you get in the queen i got in the zeppelin and uh, then the then Van Halen came out in '78, so yeah, and just it just snowballed from there. What what was the first concert you ever saw? The first real concert, the first rock concert you ever saw? Cheap Trick at the International Amphitheater, I believe it was right when Budokan broke. But Cheap Trick was sort of big here in Chicago. They were from Rockford, which is 90 miles away from here, right? And so they were getting airplay before Budokan broke. And I had the first two albums, and I played 
in color a lot. And despite the wimpy production, there's still great songs on there. And Robert and Robert and Sanders' vocals just blew me away. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I went. It was it was a Cheap Trick with Ian Hunter opening up. Oh wow. That's yeah. That's an interesting bill. Yeah, and it was at the International Amphitheater, which was a dump, but saw some great shows there. That was around 43rd in Halstead. Uh-huh. That, like, that was like our number two venue until they built the Rosemont Horizon, which is now the Allstate Arena, which still gets pretty good concerts. I saw Tool there most recently this summer, and it was that, that was a great show. Yeah, I remember that uh, that venue. As as you and I talked before we uh, started rolling, uh, my my family is from the uh, uh, Chicago area, so uh, I'm familiar with a lot of the venues up there. Uh, yeah, so that's that's very cool. So so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about that you wrote me about, um, uh, which I I've always found sort of interesting, is um, disco demolition. Disco Demolition happened um, at Kaminsky Park uh, there in Chicago, um, and it's a piece, I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, it's a piece of uh, uh, rock and roll history, so to speak, right? It is rock and roll history, and it was crazy. I've been to, I've been lucky enough to, to have attended a lot of uh, interesting events. For example, I was at the fight where Mike Tyson put Evander Holofield's ear off. <laughs> this demolition was the craziest thing I ever went to. Now, keep in mind, I'm also uh, an oddball in Chicago because I am a White Sox fan. I'm not a Cubs fan. So <laughs> last year was pretty rough for us. But, hey, you know, we won the World Series in 2005. I, I so, get. I guess I'll continue yeah. to record here. I don't know. Maybe I'll. Maybe I should shut off the record button at this point. But that's, no, that's all right. Okay. It plays a part into this. The Sox, you know, they're they're like a second or tertiary market in the Major League Baseball because the Cubs are, you know, the team here. And at the time, they could not draw. They had some pretty bad teams. Uh, I think '77 they had a pretty decent team, but anyway, they couldn't draw. So. They would always do these promotions, and they had a disco night that did fairly well. Well, there was a disc jockey here. Um, most of the listeners probably heard of him. His name's Steve Dow, and he was fired from a dis from a rock station because they went to an all disco format. He got hired by a rock station here that's still in existence, WLUP. It's called the Loop. And he started doing a disco demolition every more. I, I think it was like every Friday he'd play a disco record and then scratch it and blow it up. And what really ticked him off was Rod Stewart releasing Do You Think I'm Sexy? And he's like, why are all these rock bands releasing disco songs? Well, the, the White Sox were big on promotion because they couldn't draw anyone to the stadium. And it was a rough crowd. When, they, when you'd go to Sox games, a lot of drinking, a lot of fights. Yep. They decided to have it was called, it was actually called Teen Night. And it was a promotion where for 98 cents, you would get in and get a general mission seat for this disco demolition that would happen between games. They played the Detroit Tigers. It was a doubleheader, right? Yeah, it was a doubleheader. Yep. And so the first thing I remember is we brought, you know, disco records and the loop was 97.9. So admission was 98 cents. 
So which you get which the, the loop the loop was a um, the loop was one of the better rock and roll stations there in Chicago. Yeah, they were, and they and they still play rock music. But yeah, they they were, and and like for example, they played a lot of Cheap Trick, and they played a lot of uh, Zeppelin. So yeah, they they were the rock band. Yep. They were the rock fans' uh, radio station. They always had a hot girl called her name was Lorelai, <laughs> and I think they named her after the Stick song. Yeah. You know, so they had this hot chick with a tight loop shirt. She was at at the event too. So anyway, you get there with a disco record, 98 cents. Yep. And the first thing I remember is it was packed. We didn't know what to expect. We we give the disco record. I, I hand the guy a dollar and I go, where's my change? And the, and the ticket seller goes, fuck you. Because <laughs> they, they were sick of handing out two cents. Yeah. So they, they, it was basically a dollar to get in. See, see, you think that kind of you think that kind of thing only happens in New York. Where's my change? Go fuck yourself. Well, actually, it happens in Chicago. I think it's all all up north, right? <laughs> to put this in perspective, this all happens um, on July twelfth in nineteen seventy nine. Right. You know where I grew up, it was pretty heated. You know, there there were guys who got in the disco, and there's there I think there was a gang called the Park Boys and. They would beat up, you know, if you had a Rush t-shirt on or a Zeppelin t-shirt on and you were alone, you know, five or six guys would pile out of the car, disco guys, and beat the crap out of you. So then the rock guys started, you know, forming gangs and there'd be huge fights over music. Yep. So it was, a, it was pretty, pe- people were very passionate about this. And the, the event at Comiskey Park, this was the old Comiskey Park, was absolute insanity. It, they packed the place to capacity and then some. And the old Comiskey Park had like windows in the side of the stadium with chicken wire. And people were climbing up like the gutters and ripping the chicken wire in and piling into the stadium. So I knew something was going down. And I believe the center fielder for the Detroit Tigers at the time it might have been – I don't know if it was – I think it was Ron LaFleur. I have to check back. But anyway, I remember him. He And he's interviewed in one of the things. Someone threw an M80 on the field and almost killed this guy. I mean, so people were throwing fireworks and everything during the first game. There was this element of something was going to go down. And the White Sox lost the first game, and they had the disco demolition between games. So Steve Dahl comes out. By this time, the stadium is beyond capacity. I mean, there's people in the in the aisles, in the upper decks. I've never seen a crowd like this for a White Sox game. And he blows up the records, and he starts going, disco sucks, disco sucks. Next thing you know, everybody just starts piling onto the field, and there's a riot, and people are throwing records because they blew up all the disco records that you brought to the admissions guy, and they piled it into a big box, and they blew it up. So there's records all over the field. People are throwing it like frisbees and hitting each other. I saw a guy get hit in the neck and he's bleeding. Do, do you remember? Do you remember at any point in time were they were they like playing any like rock and roll over the PA or anything to go no, along I don't with remember, it? No, not at all. No. <laughs> but during the first game, it was crazy. Like the old bullpen at Comiskey Park, like the center field, the bullpen was like behind center field, so like it was kind of H shaped. And so the bleachers were above that. And I remember a guy, there was a guy just pissing on the side 
of the bullpen onto the groundskeeper's heads. I was like, what the hell is going on here? So I knew, I mean, you could tell something was going to happen between games. When people ran in the field, I, I, I was not surprised. And then they started a fire at center field. So they burned a big hole. I mean, not behind home plate. I'm sorry. And they tore down the uh, batting cage, you know, where they had batting practice. And the field was all torn up. So it was the last forfeit. The White Sox had a forfeit the second game. And that's uh, that's a big trivia question for baseball fans. That's the last forfeit in Major League Baseball. The White Sox forfeited the second game because the the field was unplayable. You know, so Bill Vec, the owner of the team, came on and said, "Please get off the field." And, you know, no one did. And then Harry Carey was the you know Harry Carey started. He came from the Cardinals and announced for the White Sox right. here. That's right. And all that you know, all that na 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 and fireworks and all that stuff. That all started with the White Sox. And even though no one came to the games, everything started. A lot of that stuff started with the White Sox. And then when Harry Carey went over to the Cubs, he carried a lot of that over. So Harry Carey was the announcer at the time. And he, and he goes, hey. And everybody just said, hey, Harry. Because, you know, Harry's reputation was he just got drunk and called the game. So that did no good. No one got off the field until the Chicago police came came on with their horses and shields. And everybody knew not to screw with them. You know? <laughs> and so a lot of people, I mean, if you, if you read articles and you listen to folklore, a lot of people kind of point to this particular event as being the event that actually, you know, set off the death of disco and, and really from then on. I believe it played a part because it became unpopular after that and it started getting uh, less airplay here in Chicago and nationally. But I also believe that Pink Floyd, the wall single-handedly more than anything killed disco because that went to number one and stayed at number one for well over a year and all of a sudden disco died. That's one thing uh, for sure. And if uh, if you look at the time period again i mean that's that's why i say it keeps coming back to the time period if you look at the time period so many great albums were coming out in 78 and 79 i mean you had you had zeppelins in through the outdoor you had um the wall like you mentioned even even lesser i mean you had van halen too you had uh you know even lesser um uh not not so much hard rock or metal but you had like uh tom petty's damn the torpedoes came out in in that uh time frame and and queen uh live killers you had dynasty you had highway to hell well dynasty now <laughs> i mean <laughs> dynasty no now dynasty i you can't put in there because being a kiss fan in my neighborhood i was really an outcast i was really a loser because here you got all the rock guys and then you had all the disco guys and all the rock guys moved on from kiss and they're in the rush and led zeppelin and all of a sudden, Kiss releases a disco song, and I'm like, what the hell? My favorite band just made a disco song. You know, I thought Dynasty was a decent album. I thought the production was kind of wimpy, but... There's some good stuff on Dynasty. But it killed it killed the band in Chicago. It, they, well, I, I don't know. Paul Stanley always talks about, you know, oh, we used to come here and play the Aragon Ball. I'm like, dude, 
after Dynasty, you couldn't draw. They had to cancel. I know on the Animalize tour, I had to drive up to Milwaukee to see them because they couldn't sell enough tickets here. And Animalize was like their big comeback album for, you know, Look It Up was the comeback album, but Animalize really took them to another level as far as sales. And, uh, yeah, they couldn't draw here in Chicago until the reunion tour. So, so I Was Made For Loving You killed Kiss here in Chicago for years. And for a long time, I kind of discounted Dynasty, but at, at the urging of, uh, of Grown Up Rock's co-host, Sonny Pooney, uh, I went back and kind of listened to that record. And first of all, let me just say, I was never a hater of um, I Was Made For Loving You. I never hated that song. I liked it. I was fine with it. I, I get that, uh, that to a lot of people, it was a disco song and, and they weren't having that from kiss so i get it um but i never hated that song and there there are plenty other songs on that record that i think are are solid songs rock songs uh yeah i mean i get it yeah the ace really song yeah hard times is great i mean there's there's good stuff on that record but um but the point is there were there were rock and roll for me that was really sort of a coming you know, the golden age of rock and roll was starting to really come uh, about, you know, 78, 79, uh, even 1980. I mean, there was some great shit coming out at that point in time. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, but there, there was a lot of, you know, it was kind of a changing of the guard, though, too, because you had, like, in Through the Outdoor, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of. So I thought Zeppelin, and then John Bonham passes away. Right. Uh, you had Aerosmith, you know, Aerosmith followed up Rocks with Draw the Line, which I thought was a mess. I love Night in the Ruts, but it didn't really make much of an impact. So Aerosmith was falling in favor. Plus, they had the reputation that they sucked live because they were always so messed up on drugs. Yeah. Nugent, yeah. you know, Nugent was kind of fading, too. So you had um, it was more like the new wave was coming up. up it was. And- Cause you- yeah, he had, he had Pink Floyd, you had Tom Petty. So as far as like hard rock, that was kind of kind of tailing off. You had, you know, Van, Van Halen was was pretty much carrying the mantle until you had the new wave of British heavy metal coming up. Here's a couple more records that were released in 79. You had UFOs, Strangers in the Night. Which is partially recorded in Chicago, which UFO is one of our adopted bands, man. You, you listen to Lights Out, he says Lights Out in Chicago, yep. and the crowd is crazy. Yeah, that was at the amphitheater too, and and Michael Shanker was a god here. Yep, and then and then to go along with the Shanker theme, you also had Scorpions' Love Drive, even though that was he was on his way out at that point. We had a uh, festival here called Chicago Fest, which was at Navy Pier, and this was when Navy Pier was a dump. It was not the nice uh, place it is now. It was falling apart, but Mayor Jane Byrne decided to use it for something called Chicago Fest, trying to emulate what they do up in Milwaukee with Summerfest. And they would get some awesome bands. And Scorpions played one of their, if not their first American gig here at Chicago Fest on the Love Drive tour. That was great. So the majority of their set, I mean, they played a lot off of Love Drive, but they played a lot off of the Tokyo tapes, you know, the Willie John Roth stuff. Yeah. But it was um, it was Matthias Yabs playing lead guitar at the time. And, every, and the rumor was, was Michael Shanker going to show up with him? And he, of course he didn't. But no. uh, So, I mean, some good stuff. So I think, I think it, I think it's true what they say about music. It's all about timing. Uh, right. And you know, that, that's the timing, the same as the timing uh, but, that happened in the nineties when things started turning grungy, you know? 
Exactly. But you know what? I'm not a, I'm not really a Pink Floyd fan, but I have to give it, it, the wall single-handedly. I mean, it, that album was so huge. It was. And, I'm, I'm not a Floyd fan at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm just not. I think more than anything, even more than the event that I went to, Pink Floyd's The Wall killed disco. Yeah. That, that, that's my opinion. Yeah. That's all good. So, yeah. so tell me, um, uh, before we kind of start to wrap things up here for this time capsule episode and, uh, Joe, we're going to get you back on here because you got a lot of cool stories and I want to share. Some oh yeah. I can ones. go on and on. About yeah. Tell, right. tell me about, um, uh, a Dio concert in which you ended up backstage at a Dio concert. Um, what, yeah. what tour was it, that? So it was Holy Diver. Okay. The first tour. Right. And I couldn't even tell you who opened it up. I, I'd have to look back. It was at the Aragon Ballroom, another famous venue here that has not hosted concerts. They redid it. It's more like an event. It's beautiful now. But, you know, back then it was all run down and um, it was called the Brawl Room because all the fights. And we saw some great shows there. I mean, we, we saw um, this. We saw the Scorpions there a few times. We saw I saw Motorhead a few times there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great shows. Dio played the Aragon Ballroom, and we were friends with a manager of one of the top heavy metal record stores here called Rose Records. And he got us backstage passes. And we were like, whoa, we're going to meet Dio. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, awesome. no doubt. Yeah. I remember the only other interaction I had with a rock musician was uh, personally, I remember ran into the Scorpions and Iron Maiden, and like I didn't know what to say. I, like Herman Rarebell was like, standing next to me and I was, I was mumbling my words. I wanted to tell him how great his solo album was and very nice, very polite. And we watched Steve Harris play tennis, which was pretty cool. They played up in Wisconsin, a gig together. But anyway, uh, so we, we, you know, we go to meet Dio and it, it, it was pretty cool. It was a great show. We go backstage and, um, Dio was awesome. He really friendly, you know, real nice guy, but it was interesting because Dio was in a room by himself. Uh, Viv Campbell was kind of like by himself. So I went up to Viv Campbell and, told him I had the Sweet Savage demos. That was his original band, which was great stuff. And a lot of those licks he took and put on that first Dio album. There's there's a lot of similarities there. Uh So he was totally, you know, happy when I said I was a Sweet Savage fan. So he talked to us. He was very friendly, too. And then you had Jimmy Bain and uh, Vinny Apice, you know, sitting with some groupies on their laps. And by this time, I went with my buddy and – we were starving and there's this huge deli platter laid out. No one's touching it. So we're just, we go, we're, we're making ourselves sandwiches. I mean, we're piling it on. We, you know, we took the French bread, ham, turkey, Swiss cheese, mayo, mustard. We're starving. Joe, let me just, let me yeah. just specify, Joe. They didn't have little bread, right? They had full on size bread. Yes, they did. Yeah, they had everything. Yeah. And and backstage at the Aragon was sh- a shithole. It was like, yeah, it, w- it was not nice. You know, now you go back, you know, I did the meet and greet for Kiss and now the backstage area, even at these sheds, you know, they had their own tents and yeah. making smoothies for the one guy and, and roast beef for the other guy. Yeah. So they, they, they it was basically a dump. They were lucky the toilet worked. So we, we start making these sandwiches. We're starving and no one's touching the food, right? What do you do? You put dog food in front of a dog. He's going to eat. That's what we were like. So, uh, me casa su casa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Bain got so pissed at us. And, and I always, you know, he passed away a couple 
year or last year on that Def Leppard cruise, and I just immediately thought of that story. He's like, "What are you doing? You're, that's our food, man! Get the fuck away from it!" And we're like, "Okay, you know." And we put the sandwich. I, I had to have a bite, and then I put the sandwich down. I'm like, "Maybe we should get out of here." And I think that's what we did because <laughs> obviously we weren't out welcome after that. He, he he was pissed we were eating their food, but no one else was eating it. So that was my Dio story. Dio was cool. Vivian Campbell was very cool. Vivian Campbell and Dio were like away from Jimmy Bain and and I, I think it was Vinny, but I remember they were with groupies yeah. and yeah. So we we got yelled at for eating too much food off of their deli platter. Was Jimmy fucked up? You know, I it's in, it's interesting because I always had this naivete back then that rock stars. I don't know. I I. Like I knew rock stars partied, but I never partied, right? So I I I don't drink, I don't do drugs, and I smoked weed once, and it made my lungs burn, and I I, I never touched it since. So like I never I was never into the drinking and the drugs. I just liked the music, right? Yeah. And I always, you know, you'd read these articles where like Steven Tyler would say like, oh, he's clean, but and you and you'd believe him, and you you think the band members were friends. So I was very naive to all that until quite later on so i couldn't really tell you if he was or not you know i i'm i i assume they 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 were well i mean that that would have been about the time period that jimmy was drinking i mean jimmy was always a heavy drinker so that would have been uh certainly a time period that he was drinking but when when he yelled at you guys did uh was there any reaction out of uh dio or or viv no because if i remember correctly dio was like in a separate room you know, this, so this was, you know, 1982 or 83, maybe, yeah, 84, right. 84, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it seemed like Dio and, and Viv were separate from those guys, but Jimmy Bain was not happy with us because we were eating his food. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, this has been cool. Uh, so I'll tell you what, Joe, uh, give me your favorite Dio song to play us out here. You know what? I love uh, Last in Line. I really do. All right. Last in line classic to play us out here on the Grown Up Rock Time Capsule. Joe, I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can do this again. Absolutely, my friend. All right. Peace out, folks. So go to our website at growinuprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 